Welcome to Missionary Roundtable with your host, Kale Horvath. Welcome back to Missionary Roundtable. My name is Kale Horvath. I'm your host, and I'm excited to be back with you again this week talking about missions and the Great Commission and different facets of international and uh, cross-cultural missions work. And so we've been interviewing pastors and missionaries each week, talking about those different points of Great Commission ministry. This week, I'm joined by my guest, Pastor Corey Gordon. Uh, Pastor Corey is the pastor of Cali Harbin Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia. Uh, Corey, it's great to have you on. Hey, great to be with you. I'm excited. I've known Corey for several years now. He's a friend of mine. Uh, How many years have you been the pastor at Cali Harbin? Uh, Since 2006. I've been there since 2000. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first six years, I was just kind of an assistant, um, quote unquote, on staff. Nobody was getting paid, but we were all bivocational. Mm -hmm. And so I was there six years then. And then in 2006, I became the senior pastor. Okay, so 14 years already. That's awesome. Uh, Corey and his church support many missionaries, uh, including my family, actually. Uh, So thank you guys for that. We love your church. And uh, all of that aside, though, uh, you yourself, along with your church, but you yourself have been on uh, many missions trips. Um, How many trips or or, or what kind of countries have you been to uh, that you visited missionaries and gone on trips? Mainly, I, I started out when I was young. My pastor was very involved in uh, an island called Dominica, which is right down by Antigua and Curacao and those areas. Mm-hmm. So my first couple of missions trips were to there uh, and and working with him. But when I became the pastor, I had already gotten connected up with guys that were in Cambodia. So most of my missions trips have been there. Obviously, I've been to Israel with LFBI and mm-hmm. and, and that. Uh, but most of my missions trips are tied into Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, okay. So yeah, limited the, those, time. some of those Asian countries over in that area. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been to Amsterdam on the thing with Jeff Adams and did that deal and kind of saw that. That wasn't. Mm-hmm. They call it a mission trip. It's it's not a mission trip to me. You're not really seeing the work. You're just studying cross culture communication. Gotcha. Uh, but no, no. Matter of fact, we're excited that you're going to Europe so that we can finally go on a mission trip. Yeah. Only 12 time zones away from our church. Oh, I know. So like, I mean, Cambodia is like the other side of the planet before you start coming back. Yes. You, <laughs> cannot, you cannot get any further away from our church than Cambodia. And how we know that is when we're there, how we keep up with what time it is here. If it's three o'clock in the afternoon there, it's three o'clock in the morning here because it's literally (laughs) on the other side of the world. And when you take flights over there, I've been through Europe to get there. And Mm -hmm. then I've been through Korea to get there. You can go both ways out of Atlanta to get there. And it's, it's all about the same time. It doesn't matter which way you go. <laughs> nope, doesn't matter. That's so, funny. Yep. Have, have you ever been to Albania with pastor Jeff? I can't, can't no, remember. No, no, that's kind of the 
one of those bucket list things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, so before we get into Cambodia, because we're going to talk about that a lot and uh, the theme of our episode this week, um, I, I just want to introduce everybody to you if they're not sure who you are. Um, why don't you just give us a brief rundown of how you uh, got into pastoral ministry, if you if you want to say your call into vocational ministry, whatever. Uh, how, how did you get into uh, the path that you're on? So when I started dating my my wife, um, she grew up in a Baptist church. I grew up as a Jehovah witness. Oh, and really? I didn't know that. Yeah. By the time I got to Georgia, cause I, I grew up in Iowa and Missouri. Um, I started dating her, you know, and she's from an independent fundamental background. And, uh, the rule was you want to see my daughter, you want to date her, you got to go to church. So <laughs> I started going to church, uh, started dealing with, some convictions that God dealt with me on. Um, just, I knew God was dealing with me when it came to salvation, but what stopped me from getting saved was I didn't know who was right. The Jehovah witness teaching that I had growing up taught me that all the other religions were false mm -hmm. and that they were the only true religion. Well, then I, my, like my second sermon at, um, my father-in-law, my future father-in-law's church, he was, ripping on Jehovah witness and he didn't even know I had that background. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of confusion went on and I was like, you, you gotta be kidding me. I, I don't know what's what. And so matter of fact, the, the, the night I got saved in a revival meeting, I went down to the altar and I literally said, and I, it was the first time I'd ever prayed to Jesus because I was raised as a Jehovah witness. No, no, you prayed to Jehovah God through the name of Jesus. Cause Jesus is just the son of God. He's not, God. Mm. And so that night I, I went down to the altar and I said, and I, I specifically prayed to Jesus. And I said, I don't know who's right, the Jehovah Witness or the Baptist. All I know is I need you. Mm, and right. that was November 1st, 1994. And within about two weeks of that event, uh, I felt like God was calling me to preach. And I didn't know how to explain it. I, I, I didn't even know how to process the information. And I would go to my father-in-law. He was my wife's girl, or my girlfriend's husband. At the, let me get this <laughs> right. My girlfriend's dad at the time, who <laughs> going to eventually be my father-in-law. And I'd say, hey, how do you, how do you know if, if you're, you know, got a calling to, to preach and, 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 and maybe to pastor and those kind of things. Mm. And he'd just go, well, you'll know and walk off. <laughs> and I thought, Thanks, man. Appreciate the help. And I later on, I realized what he was doing was, no, 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 no. You're going to have to figure this one out on your own. Mm. And I'm two weeks into salvation. So I could never get a clear cut message from God. Like, you know, is this because I didn't want to do it and I'd never been baptized. And I ended up getting baptized two weeks uh, or two months later. And as soon as I got baptized, God very clearly made it clear in my life that, no, this is what I want you doing. And I always tell people, the reason why God wouldn't let me know about the preaching thing before baptism is because God will never give you something to do until you first honor what you already know to do, which is, hey, you got to be baptized. That was the first commandment. Why don't you honor that one? And then we'll talk about some other stuff. That's a and good so, truth, though, that God's not going to yeah. give you more if you don't right. already obey what he's told you to do now. That's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. And so uh, February of of 95, I preached my first message, literally been saved about two and a half, two months. 
And uh, so what happens then is obviously I dive in. I grew up as a Jehovah Witness. Uh, they, they, they're emphatic about discipleship. Matter of fact, they're better at discipleship than we are. Um, I'm not saying that what they're discipling is right. I'm just saying their methodology is more effective the, than the, the reproducing of followers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because they, you don't get baptized in a, in a Jehovah witness church unless you've went through what's called the Brown book or the reasoning book or, or, or what have you, which is like a, in our world, the 18 lessons. Okay. Uh, I don't know that I would go that route. I think baptism is commanded uh, without a prerequisite mm-hmm. outside of being saved. Mm-hmm. So flash forward, you know, a couple of years, I go to Bible college for a while. And in Bible college, I met my eventual pastor. I left my father-in-law's church, came to Kelly Harbin, where Charles Williams is the pastor at the time. And he was one of my college professors. And Where'd you go to Bible college? Curious. Uh, a place called Trinity Theological Seminary. And where was that? Uh, in Georgia? Yes. Okay. Yep. It's just a small, it, it's a lot like LFBI, local pastors getting together and going, hey, these guys need training. Oh, cool. And so I went, I went through that, but it was shortly a couple years into it. I went, you know what, guys, no offense, but I can get what you're giving me with a strong concordance and an office. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't even, I wanted something deeper. Now they did develop me really well as far as hermeneutics and, uh, you know, homiletics, as far as the organization and the breaking down of scripture, they were really good at. So I'm off on my own, doing my own thing. I, and, and, and I am anti, oh, the spirit told me this, that, oh, the spirit told me that I, listen, I'm the, I'm a guy that just cannot stand that. I've always been a, if it's not in the Bible, I don't, I don't want to hear about it. But anyway, long story short, I am six months at Kelly Harbin and I am my, my pastor is the Pope of West Georgia. I mean, he's, (laughs) and I, I say that jokingly, but he literally was the guy who everybody looked to. And if he put his stamp of approval on you, you were set. Hmm. And so as long as I was towing the company line and I was, I wasn't, I'm not saying that in a bad way, then, then he promoted me and I was going into different churches and preaching for all his pastor buddies mm-hmm. and kind of uh, like doing a circuit, learning how to yeah, preach. And- yeah. Just guys going, Hey man, I need you to come preach for me. Brother Charles tells me how well you are. And you know, let's, I'm going to get you to come preach for me at my church. And I was just, you know, I'm 26 years old. And so what happens is uh, six months after being at Kelly Harbin, a church had came one Sunday night uh, in August and to listen to me preach. I didn't even know they were coming. I was just preaching on a Sunday night service. Looked down, there's about four or five guys sitting on the front row. I just thought they were friends with Brother Charles. Afterwards, they wanted to talk to me. And I said, okay. And uh, they were talking about me being a pastor for them. Uh, at a church. And I said, okay. Um, they said, why don't you come preach for us next Sunday night at our church? I said, okay. So the next Sunday was Labor Day. And that morning I was at my church and our pastor said, hey, uh, Brother Corey's going to go preach tonight for the church that's looking for him to pastor. And they, this church that's going to p- hire me maybe has 30 people in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what happens is he goes, how many of y'all want to go with Brother Tr- tonight. Well, half the church raises their hand. 
And he's like, well, that's settled. We're going over there. And the whole church, we have about 80 people show up on a, <laughs> a 30 member church. I mean, the place is packed out. And I'm, I can tell you to this day, the sermon I preached, it is the worst message I've ever done. I walked <laughs> in that church thinking I'm the man. I mean, <laughs> I not only get churches six months later to, to, start looking at me, but man, I can even get my home church to follow me and cancel church. And I mean, I'm literally think I'm this, hot stuff, this, right? <laughs> this is step one to me replacing, you know, Charles Stanley or somebody. I mean, <laughs> well, I get in there and fall completely on my face. I mean, it's horrible. Everybody in the building knew it was horrible. Um, needless to say that church never called me back. Uh, that, that evening, I am driving home devastated. And God, who is rich in mercy and grace, mm. kind of leaned in and said, don't worry about it. You're going to pastor Kelly Harbin Baptist. And I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, this is wild. So then I, I sit on that information for probably a year and a half knowing I believe this. And, and when I say God told me, he didn't say it in an audible voice but man, my spirit knew exactly what I was supposed to do. And so this is five years before I take over. And in that five-year period, uh, I'm introduced to Mark Trotter and discipleship and, you know, breaking down scriptures on how to study the Bible. And, and so that, was, that was when he was at my church, yeah? When yes, he was the pastor yeah, at First still, Baptist. Yep, yep. This is early 2000s. Okay. And so I'm buying everything in the bookstore out of First Baptist, and <laughs> I'm going through all this. Well, you got to remember, I'm I'm in an independent, fundamental King James only church. Okay, mm -hmm. now they had the King James right. That the, the issue was their reasoning for it was not adequate or factual. Uh, yes, they had the right Bible. They just they didn't know how to defend it correctly. And bottom line was. They had a lot of rules. Women wore dresses when they went to church. You know, men wore ties. I mean, you didn't have facial hair. You, you had all the stuff. Well, in my discipleship process with Mark from afar, I started questioning a lot of things that we bought into. Well, I'm doing that behind the scenes. And my pastor goes ahead and ordains me three years before I became the pastor and he went in for heart surgery, and he basically told some deacons, listen, if I die, uh, I'm recommending him to take the church. So long story short. So he was kind of lining up his successor. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah. I think everybody in the building knew it. Uh, me and him had not had the conversation yet. And when we eventually did have the conversation, it didn't go well. Uh, oh. <laughs> well, he thought I was trying to push him out the door. He was late 70s and, you know, <sighs> You know, bottom line is a lot of pastors stick around because it's a paycheck and I, you, you start getting in on somebody's money, then they, they're a little upset with you. So it didn't go well. Uh, I ended up basically in that same time period after he ordained me, started questioning certain things like divorce and remarriage of an ordained man. And I said, do you sure we got that right? And, and I would throw out scenarios. Well, what if a guy, you know, was lost and he, he got, you know, he, he got married and it didn't work out, but yet then he got saved and God gave him a wife and it's his second wife technically, but it's, 
after salvation is is that guy done and you know referring to I, those the character qualities of a of yes. a bishop yeah right and and Husband man, of one wife getting into that uh, man i've always said pick whatever side of that argument you want and i'll pick i'll go the other side and argue it i get both sides <laughs> the issue was it was little things like that i started questioning and there was a lot of them Yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I start going, guys, you know, if I'm going to preach the Bible, I want to make sure it's the Bible. Sure. So, you know, we're doing missions together. We're going to Dominica. Uh, I'm on his board of directors for Windward Islands Missions. That is a mission group that he has started back in the 70s uh, for, for national pastors. And I did learn a lot about national pastors. And that's a lot of why I believe the way I believe with missions today. So, in that same time is when I'm meeting up with the Cambodian guys and um, I meet up with those guys and start building relationships with them. Uh, but I wasn't in a position to be able to do much about it because I wasn't a pastor. Mm. I, I mean, I personally tried to support some of it, but at the same time, it's, it's so much easier when your church is involved. Right. So, so anyway, in 2006, he resigns as a pastor uh, in June, in July, they vote me in as the pastor. And we probably were a church of 85 at the time. Well, they, I mean, it was a mass exodus. I mean, you could have rewrote the book of Exodus. I mean, they were leaving <laughs> out in, in groves. We got down to about 30 people, which is good for and, the confidence of a young preacher. Sure. Oh, yeah, oh, it's, it, <laughs> oh, it's horrible to go through it. However, God was purging our church because where we are as a church today would never be possible hmm. without that purging then. And many of the people that left, I am now still friends with. We just different styles of churches. They're not want, they're not wanting to go to mine. I don't really care for theirs. And you know, bottom line is we can still be friends. Others that left, we still haven't spoke. I mean, it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you but think that did a lot for you uh, b between, you know, falling on your face at that one meeting? You just just like God working on humility in your life personally? or Yeah, because when I did start pastoring, um, I had everything planned out. I knew exactly how to build the church. I knew exactly everything I should be doing as a pastor to make this thing work. And for the first three years of pastoring, nothing worked. <laughs> and, and, and I would tell you here, 14 years in the ideas that I had the first three years are definitely biblical ideas and they're good ideas. They just were, it, it's almost like God says, all oh, that's great. But at the end of the day, you're going to learn to trust me in this process. Hmm. And man, you talk about falling on my face. And so one of the things that I did differently is I'm a bivocational pastor, not because our church doesn't have the money to pay me full-time. They do. Uh, the issue, we could hire a full-time pastor today. The issue is I have a very successful business. And at the time we were, that I became the pastor, we were building a building. And my first two years, I didn't take a salary. I said, Hey guys, dump all that money for salary. You were going to get me into the building. Let's, let's get this gym built. And so I, after two years, they started paying me. And about the third year in, the kid that works for me, and he still works for me today, grew up in our church. His mom's part of our team. And um, we were sitting there talking one day, and 
he was talking about me pastoring. And I said, you know, Bradley, I said, really be honest with you. I'm not really any good at pastoring. I said, I kind of <laughs> stink at it. And uh, when I walked off, it was one of those moments with God again. <laughs> and now, you know, God was like, okay, now you've finally gotten into a place where I can work uh, because amen. before you thought you were bringing something to the table. Mm. And 14 years later, I still to this day recognize I don't bring anything to the table. Mm. I mean, whatever gets accomplished in God's work, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Paul, here's Paul yeah. going, and there's no good in me. That's Paul saying that. Right. God, God's got to, he, he's got to break down the man before he can yeah. use him. And I mean, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Jacob getting rest, you know, wrestling yeah. with, with the Lord and then him, you know, touching his thigh and then he's yeah. hobbling now he's yeah. hunched over whenever he goes to see yeah. his brother. And he just, he needs to humble us all before he can use us. Well, and the simple fact is he never walks the same again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For the rest of his life, he walks different. Anytime God does that, you walk different afterwards. Spurgeon said, the man that God will use the most, he will break the most. Mm. We all want to be used by God. We just don't want the process to get there. Uh, yeah. It's all, Paul says, you know, you know, that whole, uh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we always stop there. But the only problem is, the continuing the verses and the fellowship of his suffering. Okay. Yeah. Well, we don't want that. We just want the power of the resurrection. Well, okay. Even if you were going to stop there in order to experience resurrection, you have to die. Yeah. I mean, you can't experience resurrection if you're still living. <laughs> Colossians three, one, Hey, if we're going to be dead in Christ, man, I mean, you got to die here. Yeah. So that, that was my process. So, you know, I I don't know if that brings us up to speed on. No, that that's good. Or... I, I I really appreciate that, and uh, some of those things I definitely didn't know either. And I I don't know. I mean, us guys that you know, I, I know that pride is an issue for anyone who's a human. But us guys who take pride in our work, you know, if we work with our hands or whatever, right. uh, it's it's easy to get caught up in pride in ministry because it's, it's something you work with your hands to build, certainly. And uh, God has a a way of reminding me anytime I'm getting too big for my britches. We'll just say it that way. <laughs> right. yeah. um, he, he, he does it for us all. Yeah. And which is, which is good if you're going to be in ministry and lead people. Um, so let's, yeah. So let's take this. You started to talk about Cambodia a little bit um, and, and mission. So now you're a senior pastor um, and you've been active in supporting missions, which is good because if anyone's listening to this podcast, who is a pastor, I just want you to hear from another pastor who's been involved in supporting missions um, in a very specific way uh, throughout his time of being a pastor. And these guys in, in Cambodia that you're involved in, they're actually mostly Filipino brothers. I, am I right? Yes. Uh, to an extent or just some okay. of them, the, 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 the main guys are, however, in the last probably 10 years, that's starting to change the, 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 the leaders, the guys running the show are Cambodia or I mean, are Filipinos, the guys that are doing the most effective work are Phil are Cambodian nationals because those Filipino guys have been there for a long time now. I mean, yeah. uh, Mike Valdez and, and yep. uh, Lomer hope they, they've been there a while. But so, so here's the cool story behind this. And this is, this is kind of where missions are in the world. First of all, I, I start with, we as Americans are no longer in the driver's seat when it comes to missions and, as a full-blown patriot, I'm okay with that. Uh, 
God used this country to do a lot. And, and that doesn't mean we're not involved. I would say America is still majorly involved on the banking side of missions that sure. listen, God has used this place as a funnel, but as far as putting out product going and reaching the world, um, America's lagging behind compared to every, every other country out there that, that I'm involved in. Now, let me give you what went down. So Bob Hughes is a guy, and, and I forget the other guy's name. These guys were World War II veterans, and they fought in the Philippines um, against the Japanese. And so while they were in the Philippines, they obviously fell in love with the place. And they were Christians, and they came home, and they said, you know, if we can go to the Philippines and fight for America, then we should be able to go to the Philippines and do something for the Lord. And so they came out of Springfield with BBC, and Bob and I, I, my, the other guy's names slip in my mind. They head over to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And so they start doing work. This is this is like 1950s and 60s. Okay. And, and they're working. And one of Bob's major convicts is, uh, converts is a guy named uh, Jasalva. Uh, Dr. Jasalva is, is what we call, uh, I can't think of his first name, but uh, he has a church right now in Cebu City, the Philippines, and he's an old guy, man. He mm -hmm. is he's up there. He's late 70s, probably. And this church is six stories tall. It's a building in downtown Cebu City. Uh, and they have pumped out more missionaries than any church I know ever wow. in, in America. OK, in that church, they have multiple missions conferences a year and. Uh, Dr. Nobley is another one uh, in, and I think, I, I think he's in Manila, but these guys that were American soldiers planted the seed. Then the Filipino nationals took over. Now the Filipino nationals for the last really in the late 19, well, 1980s and nineties, they were pumping out missions and they still are. Hmm. So these missionaries like Mike Valdez, Lomer Hope, De La Cruz, uh, Paul, Tag, um, Tabano. Yeah, Tabano. I almost said Taglabu, but no, he's the NFL commissioner probably before your day. But uh, <laughs> so anyway, these guys head over to Cambodia in the late 90s when Popot regime is removed. And then they set up camp when the when the place first opened. Okay. And they are working. Okay. So one of the things, and we missed out on this year for COVID-19. But we were supposed to be there in July for the graduation. So they start a Bible college. And uh, two years ago in 2018, I preached the Bible college. And as I'm sitting there, I literally, it's its year number 18. So they started the Bible college in 2000. In 2000. And not every graduate is still around, but every graduating class still has somebody around. Wow. So it, we're talking 20 years of fruit that remains. And mm -hmm. so I, I forget who graduated year one. Year two was a guy named Kunte Prack. When we get more time, I got to come back to him because this is Apostle Paul type hmm. stuff, Book of Acts type stuff, uh, what he's been doing. Year three was Seahawk. All right. Seahawk is those two guys are my age, and I will be connected to them. 
until we go home to be with the Lord. Those two guys are the guys that are really doing some stuff, man. And now that's just two of multiple guys. We have another guy named Pastor Savoon who is tearing it up. And these guys, a lot of them work in what's called dump ministry. So uh, in Cambodia, uh, we have garbage dumps that come and people dump. And then at night, uh, all these families will actually go into these city dumps and start pulling out recyclables as the trucks are dumping. It's very dangerous. People have died. I mean, it, it, very unhygienic. And these people work all night long for a dollar. I mean, that's basically what they get. Uh, and so the deal is I can either me go in and work and get a dollar. I can get my wife and my three kids and we can make $5. I mean, and so uh, that's what they do. And so they started a ministry called be happy. This is way back in the day and it's still going today. It's called be happy. Actually, I was, I was checking your website, uh, your church's website before yep. I, we had this conversation. I saw that on there under your missions yep. page. Yep. Yeah. Be happy is okay. So the way it works is, we donate money. And then what the missionaries do is they go up to these family members and they say, if I give you the dollar, will you let your kid come back to our church throughout the night? We'll bathe them, change their clothes, put them fresh clothes on and teach them the Bible. Well, if you're a, a mom and dad, you don't want your kids in that anyway. So you're willing to do whatever. Plus they're reimbursing the you. Yeah. So uh, that was ministries there. So those like, okay, give you an example. Paul Taglio. I, I got Paul Taglio. <laughs> Tabano. Paul Tabano uh, was really the Filipino guy that was overseeing a lot of that. And he has since handed those over to, and he's still involved. Don't get me wrong. That's right. 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 But he is, but he's training like that, and discipling guys. Yes. And Savoon took over his church. Now the first year I was there in 2010, I, I was feeling sick and it was one of those, my last Sunday there. And they, they literally, you, you're preaching outdoors, open air. There's no air conditioner. And we are within, I don't know, 2000 feet of the dump, which is where this church is. And sure enough, you'd get a downward wind of that. And I, and I'm talking about, you're trying to preach, you're, you don't feel good. And you're, you're just trying not to lose your cookies at that point because it stinks <laughs> that bad. And that church was set up right there on the edge of that dump site. That church is since now, I think it's even been dismantled because the, the fact is they, the, the city of Phnom Penh moved their dump site from that location to a further one out. And so now we have a, a building out there that has like three stories. It's an orphanage. And a lot of these parents is coming in and drop their kids off. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, and what do you do? Say, no, we're full. I mean, right. You do what you can. So, yeah. but yeah, that's, so to bring up the speed, that's how yeah. the yeah. nationals got there because some men went to the Philippines in the fifties and sixties and reached the Filipinos. Now the Filipinos yeah. are reaching yeah. the Cambodians. That's amazing. Okay. So let, let me ask you this, cause I do want to get to more stories of uh, the Cambodians and the Filipino guys in Cambodia. Cause they're doing amazing work. Um, but let me ask you this for, uh, for you and for your church, what is the, um, and, and feel, to, feel free to speak as specifically as you want to on this. What's the strategy of supporting, uh, national pastors in, I don't want to say instead of American missionaries, uh, but you know what I mean? You guys support a lot of national pastors and missionaries. Um, and you also support American missionaries. Obviously you support us too, but what would the strategy be for an American pastor to support national pastors? 
Okay, first of all, if you are going to focus on nationals, you have to go over there. You can't you can't just rely on emails and whatever. You have to go over and see it, and then you got to take crews over with you. So we try to do that in our church every other summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I don't do it every summer is because literally it's grueling, and right now I'm the only guy that can lead the groups. So in other words— That's a long track, too. Oh yeah. And we used to have other people in our church. We had a missions director who used to be there. He could live a trip. He's since gone. Uh, we got a new missions director. He was scheduled to go with us this summer. Uh, the COVID thing just really kind of destroyed a lot of things for us. Uh, so the idea is if I can get more leaders going, then I don't have to go I'd still go with my every two years. I just wouldn't do every summer. But mm-hmm. bottom line is, so you have to get them involved. But here's how, here's our structure. Here's our reasoning behind nationals. Mm-hmm. So we believe in third-party logistics, okay? We see this in the United States all the time. You know, you buy something from this guy. Well, he's going to he's gonna get it from that warehouse, and he's going to have it sent by that company over there. The whole time he sold it to you, but he didn't really get involved, okay? so He's just the middleman. Yes. And so third party logistics for his missions is, okay, we're the Americans. We want to reach the Cambodians. What's the best, what's the best method in doing that? Well, we can send a bunch of Americans over there or, Hey, there's Filipinos who are much better at this than we are. And, and, and I'll give you an example why, and I'm not saying this method is true everywhere in the world. Uh, it's true in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me give you an example in, in this. Okay. So if you are a missionary and you're going from the Philippines to Cambodia, sometimes you may go up in way of life or manner of living. In other words, parts of the Philippines are just as bad as the worst part of Cambodia. So if you're a young person that's gotten saved and trained and now you feel like God's called you to go to missions and you leave there and you go to Phnom Penh, you're actually stepping up compared to where you were the, at. The cultural adaptation isn't as hard is what you're right. saying. Right. And or as large still, as a leap. Yeah. Yes. And Filipinos have multiple dialects. Now they have one language, but they have multiple dialects. Uh, Tagalog is, is one of them. And so they grow up in a culture that is designed to speak multiple dialects. So for them to pick up a foreign language is much easier. We're Americans. We've been taught from birth. We're the best. We don't have to learn any of that. We are in, we speak English. Uh, and so, and what makes it even worse is I can go anywhere in the world and use English and make it. I've been in China. I've been in uh, Vietnam. I've been Cambodia, all throughout Europe. I can speak English and get by. Mm-hmm. So Plus, we're designed as people in America. We don't really, of course, we're all told to, hey, you got to take a foreign language in high school. And that's all garbage anyway. But, you know, bottom line is none of us really learn to speak a second language. Well, because you don't need to. That, right. Right. If there isn't a need. But like you said, depending on, well, in you know, I'm a missionary to Europe. In Hungary, most of those people, regardless of education, speak two or three languages because you have to. Right. Right. <laughs> you just, the need is there. Yeah. So the Philippines, because World War II, the Philippines are a lot of westernized culture there okay. because of the Americans being there. And so all of our missionaries from the Philippines speak not only Filipino and all their home languages, they speak English and then they speak 
Khmer, which is what's in Cambodia. So therefore, they they're the I mean, they're the cat's meow when it comes to languages because they can, we go over, they translate for us. They're, they're able to do stuff for us. Now, here's the thing. A lot of our methods on how to reach people in Cambodia is they want to learn English because mm -hmm. if they can learn English, especially the poor people, if they can learn English, their chances of getting a job and maybe getting out of that country or out of that situation increases. Everybody wants to know English in every country we ever go to. So, the way Hudson Taylor did it in China for years is, oh, you want to, and this is all through the Philadelphian church period. Oh, you want to learn English? Well, I got a book here. We're going to learn it. Mm -hmm. well, what is it? It's a King James Bible. Yeah. Okay. So now we're teaching you English yet at the same time, teaching you the doctrines of God. Right. And, and, and that method has been tried and true for three, 400 years now. But so anyway, uh, so our method is to, to, to do national pastors. Let me give you an example. We had an American there and I think it was five or $6,000 a month. He was getting mm -hmm. uh, a national pastor in Cambodia can live off for $500 a month. Wow. So, you know, that's 10% of what it costs to keep an American there. Mm -hmm. So just from a standpoint, I'm a businessman. I own a business that's just not good business tactics. <laughs> I'm going to pay you five grand and I can get a guy over here. But there are other places like where you're going in Cambodia, our church would go, no, 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 no. They, they need an American right now. And we're, we're not against American missionaries. Some people misunderstand. Right, that. right, right. Uh, my scrutiny on missionaries that are from America is much harder than a national pastor. And here's why. I've seen in my years, most American missionaries go to foreign fields and they try to duplicate what they came from. Sure. Okay. I, I understand that's great when it comes to maybe doctrinal or methodology of spreading the gospel, mm -hmm. but culturally stop trying right. to spread America, spread the church. And so uh, I, I'm bothered by that. Plus I've a lot of American missionaries are just straight out liars. I mean, they have a tendency <laughs> to show you a lot of stuff. And at the end of the day, it's all fake. And what I've seen with a lot of American missionaries is they go to foreign fields and link up with a current situation, whether it be a national or a missionary from another country. And next thing you know, they're going, Hey, look what we've built. And at the end of the day, uh, you haven't built anything. You, sure. That guy did all that. Now you're taking his credit right. and, and so that uh, certainly there's bad uh, missionaries who aren't doing what they ought right. to be doing. Right. But so yeah. from what you've said though, it sounds like, or in, and I'm just summarizing. So as far as uh, your church, this, the strategy in supporting those uh, national pastors, um, it really comes down to one it's in Cambodia and, and this is all cultural and uh, a specific context. So if anyone's listening to this, like Corey said, we're not against American missionaries. I'm an American missionary. I've been in interviewing American missionaries. <laughs> uh, but in that context, they can support a Cambodian or a Filipino uh, for a fraction of the cost to support an American. And not only that, the second thing is that the Filipino or the Cambodian can adapt to the culture and speak the language easier and quicker. Yep. So it actually oh, yeah. just makes more sense to do it that way is what I'm hearing from you. Does that make yep. sense? That's it. Okay. Let me ask you this. 
springboarding from that, because that totally makes sense. And I think the pastors should think about that and not necessarily ditching, you know, all their American missionaries that they support. But would you consider taking on more missionaries or national missionaries and pastors? Um, what, how has this helped your church own a specific mission field? You know, so like there are different size churches out there. There's 50 person, hundred person, 300, thousand, but you know, a, a church of a hundred, they're not going to be able to sort support um, a lot of missionaries at a substantial amount. But, you know, regardless of church size, how has this allowed your church to own a specific part of the mission field? So when I first became the pastor, um, we had been involved with Dominica for many years with our former pastor. So our church was used to, to being centralized into one location because mm-hmm. that's where most of our work uh, was done is in Dominica. My problem was within Dominica, we had raised a bunch of money to build a church for a guy who was a national pastor. And after that church was built about five years later, he up and died like out of nowhere, heart attack, boom, he was gone. Oh wow! And so I start questioning, okay, so who's taking the church? Well, it ended up in a different guy's hands with a whole, they were Baptist, but they weren't like us. And I thought, okay, wait a minute. We we spent $25,000 building that building and we no longer have an attachment to it because you didn't train anybody. So they didn't do discipleship. Right. And, and so bottom line is even if, even if a missionary doesn't understand discipleship, the LFF way, in other words, they don't know nothing about 18 lessons. They just know, Hey, I'm mature in the Lord. Here's what I know. I got to grab this young person and start developing. I'm good with that. You don't have to be as systematic as I think we are, um, but you do have to have a plan. And so when I saw that, I was like, okay, we're pulling out. We're, we're, this is, this is, I want a future. So we got into Cambodia and part of the reason why, I was just waiting for the door to open so that I could get involved with my uh, guys in Cambodia. And when I became the pastor, I did. The first thing I changed in my church was how we give to missions in the church. We believe in what's known as the faith promise giving. Okay. In other words, this system's been around for years and basically your mission offering is different than your tithe offering. And what we've always said is we want you to pray, ask God what, he would have you and your family give. And once God gives you that amount, we ask you to trust God by faith, give that amount every month so that God can resupply it, not so it can go in your pocket, so you can give it again. And our slogan has always been, God will give through you that which he will never give to you. In other words, if you're just got your hands open waiting on them, yeah, you're probably not going to see a lot of those blessings. But <laughs> If you are going to work as a funnel, mm. God will use that as a pipeline to keep, as you keep giving it, he'll keep giving more. Sure. Uh, you stop the flow, it stops. So we started Faith Promise Giving and our missions giving went way up. And you got to remember, we were down at 30 people when I started this. Mm-hmm. And so we just were faithful in it. I took over in 2006 In 2010, we took our first missionary uh, trip over there. I took six people with us and let them see it. They fell in love with it. 
And we've been doing missions trips ever since. I can't remember how many I've went on so far, but always taking people there. And Mm -hmm. uh, plus we have missionaries, our national guys and some, all of our Filipino guys and a couple of our national guys have actually made it to the United States and um, they come and stop by the dilemma that we have. Okay. And, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've, grew up in this, but most churches had missions conference. And what you'd do is you'd have a week long that you'd pull aside and say, what we're going to do is we're going to invite these missionaries from all around the country that are going through deputation. And we're going to have them, we're going to have to keep, keep them up in motels and people's houses. And we're going to have them present their work each night. And then somebody's going to preach a message on missions. Okay. I've done a few of those on deputation. Yeah. Yeah. So those are your typical missions. Okay. Well, that model of, conference doesn't work for us because for me to get my national guys over to get people more excited, it would cost us more than what we would raise in the missions conference. Mm -hmm. So we just don't do missions conferences. We, we constantly pump missions and talk about missions and, and talk about what's going on in Cambodia. But the reason why we got into Cambodia, coming back to your question, Mm -hmm. We realized as a church, especially back when we were 30 people and we're 130 now. So it's, it's not like we're, you know, well, we're 1500 people and we've got this thing figured out. No, we're, we're still struggling along, you know, going through life. And, but we realized this little church on the backside of Villarica, Georgia is never going to reach the whole world. We just, but what we can do is know that we made a dent somewhere Hmm. that, one day we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I may be able to say, you know, God, I didn't, I didn't reach the whole world, but man, I made a dent over here in Cambodia. <laughs> now to argue the other side about reaching the world, we have a lot of national guys in Cambodia who are leaving Cambodia and going to Thailand, who are going to China, who are mm-hmm. going to other places, Vietnam. And so technically we we have we have a young lady who is coming out of Seahawks Church who's going to Saudi Arabia. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I mean, that ought to tell you something. Now, here's here's the other side of missions that most people don't want to talk about. If we send Kale Horvath to Saudi Arabia, red flags are going off everywhere. Mm-hmm. Why is this white American guy in our country? Mm-hmm. Right. If we send a Cambodian lady who is going over there to go to school and yet do missions at the same time, there's no red flags. Nobody thinks nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Same thing. We could take guys out of Latin America and send them into the Middle East. Nobody thinks nothing about them. Send them into Morocco and Libya and those areas. The problem is Americans have a stigma. I don't think that stigma is fair, but it is a stigma. And so when we show up, most people are going, uh, what are y'all doing here? You know, mm-hmm. what, what are you up to? And so uh, the other part of doing third-party logistics missions is we can get into areas with darker colored skin people than Americans. Because, and it's just harder for an American yes. to not yep. only get to, but then to have effective ministry, sure. Yep. yep. 
Do you find, and, and I think that's really interesting, uh, absolutely, do you find in your church, because you guys are focused, and again, you support us in Hungary, you support other people as well, um, but you're so focused on Cambodia, do you find that that allows the individual Cali Harbin church member to to feel like that uh, they have a part and ownership in, in, the, in the International Great Commission? Yeah, yeah, it, because it, they're it, constantly seeing updates and stuff about, yeah. like you said. Yeah, they they're more that, and and the missionaries like Mike comes to our church, and, and you got to understand, Mike to me is 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 our right hand. Without mm-hmm. Mike, we can't do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Mike comes to our church, he's beloved. I mean, our people they know, know him. him. They know yeah. him. Yeah, this he's. For all intents and purposes, he might as well be sent out of our church. <laughs> I mean, he's he's part of it. And yeah. same thing with Seahawk and and Prack and and those guys. Uh, when we get more time, I'll tell you the story about Prack. Unless you want me to tell it now. On oh, yeah, just give us a summary. I got a few minutes yet. Okay, so when I'm in 2010, we go over there, and I told this is where we get into to national pastoring, and I go to Mike and I said, Mike before we come over here next month, I said, I want to start seeing national work. And I said, I know a lot of churches are, and at the time more churches were involved, but like new Philadelphia, they, they, you guys support Mike and Paul and Lomer and all those guys. I said, I want some work over here that only we can claim. And I wasn't saying it from selfish standpoint. I was just saying, we want to make Kelly Harbin a difference in somebody's life here. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had sent 1200 bucks over to put a roof on a church that they were starting to build about a month before we get there. And so the, the day we're there, I'd ask our crew, I said, guys, I need you praying that God would show us where he wants us to put our thumbprint on this place. And so we're all praying and we get on a barge and go across the Mekong river and we go out. I swear to you, I I thought we were in the Amazon. I mean, we were so deep into the woods and uh, people in our van with us from our church go, you know, this is a lot like Kelly Harbin because you know, you've been to our church (laughs) and so that stuck with me. And then the, the, the church building wasn't even done. The walls weren't even totally done, but the, the roof was on and they wanted me to, to preach and pray a dedication over the building. And so I did, and all the little kids were out there. And uh, so I went to Mike and I said, Mike, this is it. This is the guy. And I, we all knew this is it. And uh, so what happened was he was just starting out young guy, mm-hmm. uh, wife, one little baby. And I, it doesn't do it justice without pictures of showing the compound that it is today. Uh, but it's just this one little building in this one little, I, and when I say this little field, I'm talking little. And uh, so it's about twice the size of my driveway is, is where he's got. <laughs> and so he says, uh, so I asked Mike, I said, how much does he get a month? He said, well, he doesn't have any support. I said, well, how does he survive? And he said, me and Paul and some of us are, are taking care of him. I said, okay. I said, how much does he need a month to survive? Mm-hmm. He said, $400 a month can handle it. I said, done. He mm-hmm. said, no, I don't want it. I said, what? <laughs> he goes, I do not want you to give him $400 a month right now. He said, he has to learn to struggle the same way we learned how to struggle. And he's going to have to learn to trust God in this wow. process. 
And so Mike, who's much smarter in missions than I'll ever be. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's the man. He really yeah, is. Yeah, and I just took his word at, okay, whatever you want me to do. So eventually we got him up to right at $400 a month. And, Slowly. and many other churches were involved. Well, the very next year in 2011, I go back. And by that time, a church, Grace Baptist here in Powder Springs, had raised money for a feeding center because we had an American pastor out of their church over there, Todd Flanagan. And they raised the money for the feeding center that was right next to the church. And uh, these guys, and most people don't know, the, the, the national pastors generally, especially back in those days, in the early days, they slept on the pulpits. They'd clear off the pulpit, lay a pallet down. Their whole family would you know, sleep where they preach. And then they'd get up the next day, put the pallet away. They didn't have a home. And now, for anyone listening who's not from the South, I learned this on deputation, a pallet is a Southern term for a bed that is made out of a blanket or something that you put on yeah. the ground. So there's your uh, Southern vocabulary yeah. word of the day. What, what do you Northern <laughs> guys call it? Uh, a blanket on the ground. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, so, so either way, uh, the, in 2011, I go back and while I'm preaching, the place is packed. They're wow. hanging out. Uh, and I'm talking about a building that may seat 30 people. I mean, when we think of churches, we have a, sometimes a Western way of looking at it, but they're not huge buildings. And mm -hmm. so I look back and there's two, there's a white woman in the background, redheaded white woman. Well, when you're in Cambodia and you look out in the crowd and there's a white person, that's not normal. So when we get done, I asked Mike, I'm like, who's the white lady? Oh, she's a, she's a missionary. She's not really a missionary, but she comes in and she's from Australia and she's just trying to see work here and what have you. So I said, okay, well, that's cool. You know, and I'll, I'll meet with her later. And right next to this field that we're in is a banana field. And so I ask, how much for the banana field? Because we, this guy's already blowing. I mean, he can't fit nobody else in. We got to expand. And uh, Mike goes 30,000 US. Wow. I said, for that. And we're talking maybe 100 foot by 80 feet. Wow. And I'm like, oh, I said, man, there's no way. And this is 2011. I may have 45 people in my church at the time. <laughs> I'm like, 30 grand. And remember, 2008, 2009. That was right, after, right in the recession era. Yeah. Yes. And we had just finished a building when the economy tanked. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're trusting God. So as soon as he says $30,000, my head just drops like, there's no way I can do this, but I've got to, I got to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And about that time, somebody walks that lady up to me and says, Hey, I want to introduce you to her. I said, Hey, how are you doing? You know, we're sitting there talking. Mm -hmm. And then she walks off and I go back to America. And uh, before I know it, that field's bought. And I'm like, well, how did we do that? That Australian lady, she never even heard the conversation we were having out there. She goes back and raises money in Australia and raises the money to buy that field. Wow. And <laughs> it's now bought today. And that's amazing. There's actually a three-story building no orphanage and the, the new church, is up there. He's, he's already moved out of the old church. That's and that's what, that's what I'm saying. If I showed you the imagery of it, it just would blow your mind. But we felt like here is a place that Kelly Harbin can make a dent. And mm -hmm. even though many other churches have come alongside that, 
And sure. we by no way, we're not selfish about that. We just wanted someplace where we could make an imprint. And there was guys already working in other fields. We wanted to find a field that nobody was working in. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's awesome, Corey, as, as we wrap this up, uh, as, as you tell these stories and talk about these guys, what I love about it, and really this is kind of the whole point of the episode really came out naturally from you, is you kept saying things like, we, we yep. need to buy this, we need to do this. It's because when when you partner, and, and really whether you, your church is partnering with national pastors or American missionaries, it should be a we. Because right. it is, it's a partnership. We're all doing this thing. Uh, you know, the the co- the code word of the day is we're all in this together. Well, that's how international missions should be. And uh, it's really encouraging to hear you say that about Filipino brothers who are missionaries to Cambodia. And you're talking to Mike and shedding tears over things that when you tell it in a story, it almost sounds like you're talking about guys who are on staff at your church in Georgia. Right. You know? Well, and that's so you're a missionary at our church and way we always gauge our missionaries is this guy is an extension of our church. Mm. Once we take that person on, you're an extension of our church. That's one of the reasons why we're dogmatic about, Hey man, I got to know who you are, what you're up to, because you are (laughs) representing us at that point. Absolutely. So, and it is a we thing. And when I say we, I believe me, the fraction of the we that I'm a part of is very little compared to what the rest of the guys are doing. <laughs> and uh, I, I I do believe that God has made a way for us to be the banking arm of missions in this country. Mm. And I'm okay with that. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, well, I mean, fine. obviously the word tells us, uh, you know, that's uh, that those who, uh, you know, sow and reap, you know, it's, yep. it's, it's all, everybody's going to reap fruit from this kind of a thing. So, yep. um, so, well, Corey, thanks so much, uh, for sharing about that with us. I, I appreciate it. Um, could you leave us really quick, just like, you know, 30 seconds, one minute, if, if a pastor out there is listening and he's just never thought of, or just hasn't had the opportunity to support national pastors out of their mission budget, uh, what's something that they either need to do differently or should consider when, as they're considering doing that? Well, I, I would say first, get to a field. Wherever your field is, get there, see it. I'm sure there's nationals there. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- one of the things that I was doing this summer is we were taking Tony Godfrey mm-hmm. to Cambodia with us, and we were paying for it as a church. Well, why would we do that? Because, well, I can invest into Tony's trip one time, and if he catches the vision for Cambodia, then who knows what his church would give towards mm-hmm. that over the next 10 years. So, I mean, that's still a standing offer to people that want to go. Uh, but in short, get to the field, get as many people in your building to the field and let them see it, let them meet the guys. They'll naturally, plus, come on, what me and you are talking via Google Hangout. <laughs> right. The mission, the mission world has gotten very little. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's smaller today than mm-hmm. it's ever been. And it sounds like what you're saying with what you did with Tony, if someone out there is listening and they're like, well, I don't know Corey Gordon or whoever, uh, well, it sounds like you just ask whoever pastor friends you have, like, yep. Hey, do you support anybody anywhere? Ask who they support and then, yep. and then go see them, go visit them, go, you know, get to know them. Yep. Um, awesome. Corey, thanks so much for sharing your heart with us and, uh, your activity in missions in Cambodia. I appreciate it, man. My pleasure. 
Well, there you go. I hope you guys enjoyed another episode of Missionary Roundtable. Uh, pastor Corey is an awesome brother and a great pastor, a great man, and his church supports the mission. Uh, and their church has decided to do it in a specific way um, where they can own a part of the world and really their church can, can leave a dent in the mission while they're reaching uh, the nations from their backyard of where they're at in Georgia. So certainly we should all be investing our life and should be investing our time in the Great Commission in some capacity, but we also need to be investing our treasure. And uh, we are privileged. We live in America. We live in a rich, rich, rich nation at a time where uh, missions, I think it was Pastor Corey said, you know, the, the world is smaller than it's ever been with the technology that we have right now. We ought to be giving above and beyond our tithe to missions to be able to get the gospel out. We live in Laodicea. We live in the last days before the rapture. And Lord willing, we want to see as many people come to know him before that day does come. And so would you consider, you know, how you, whether you're a pastor, a missionary, a, a church member, how can you invest your, your time and your talents and your treasures in the Great Commission? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you back next week. God bless. Thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe and share us on social media. Also, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Theology Roundtable, at theologyroundtable.com.